All right, I invite you to take your Bibles and open with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. We are in Isaiah 44. We continue with our series through Isaiah 40 to 55. And this morning we're up to Isaiah 44. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. I invite you to stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. Isaiah 44, I'm reading verses 1 through 8. This is God's holy word for us, His people. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, The Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. This is God's holy word for us as people. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and now especially the preaching of your holy, inspired, and infallible scriptures. May you break open its truth and write it upon our hearts. May you break open the sweetness of your word and may we taste it and be satisfied and delighted with all that you have to say for us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, when I was a kid, my cousins and I used to love to go to Grandma and Grandpa's house. Grandma and Grandpa lived out in the country on a little farm, and that's where my dad grew up. We loved going to their house for lots of reasons, but near the top of the list was playing on what we called the big rock in the woods behind their house. That's what we called it, the big rock 
And when we were kids, this was a huge, long, tall, humongous rock out in the woods just behind their house. And we played on this rock all the time. We'd climb up, we'd find sticks, right? And we'd be soldiers or we'd be, you know, whatever. And we'd climb up on the rock and that was our fortress. That was base, that was our army camp, that was our tower. And you'd get up on the tip top and walk out to the edge and look down and you'd be scared to death and you'd, and you'd dare each other to jump, but you wouldn't do it because you're definitely breaking a leg. And it was just, it was fantastic. We played on that thing all the time. Well, when we grew up, years and years later, we went back to Grandma and Grandpa's house, and we walked back in those woods. We hadn't been there in years. We walked back in those woods to see, you know, what's, let's go see the big rock for old time's sake. Let's hop up on it and see if we can jump off the edge this time. And when we got back there, we discovered that the big rock wasn't nearly as big as we thought it was when we were six, seven. Um... It's actually, it's actually not that exciting. It's, it's just a rock. <laughs> uh, and you can still climb up on it, but it, you know, it wasn't that much taller than us now. Uh, it was not impressive, and uh, it no longer evoked that same sense of excitement. As an adult, it, the big rock just was, it was small, uninteresting, but it was nice to go back and see it. it but it just didn't, it didn't, get that, it didn't get that excitement. Um, and I wanted to, if you guys like have a similar story of like something in your childhood that was like, oh man, this was great. And then you go back to it as an adult and you're like, ugh. I have another example. Hamburger Helper. <laughs> when we were kids, oh man, Hamburger Helper was fantastic. I'd make it all the time. And now, I think it changed. I didn't change. <laughs> now it's just, it's disgusting. Anyways. <laughs> So we have these things, right, in our childhood that, like, these were awesome as kids, and now as an adult, it's, it just doesn't do it for you anymore. It's, it's not what you remember. Nothing tastes quite as good as nostalgia. Well, in the Old Testament, Israel believed that God was their rock, their big rock. Now, at the end of verse 8 in our text, it says... Is there a God besides me? There is no rock or no other rock. I know not any. And they used this imagery, this metaphor of a rock to capture something about the nature and character of God. For example... I'm just give you two examples from the Psalms. Now, there's a lot more places you can look. Go on BibleGateway.com, type in rock, hit search, and there's you know, less than 200, but it's like 150 or so times that rock is used. And many of those times it refers to God. And you can just do this little study on your own. It's actually quite interesting. Let me give you two examples from the Psalms. Psalm 18, verses 1 and 2. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. That powerful imagery of God as this secure fortress. 
Then at the end, towards the end, later in Psalm 18, verse 31, it says, For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. In verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 62. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. So this is what the Old Testament is filled with. This kind of imagery and language to talk about God as the rock of your salvation and your security and your refuge and your fortress. There's a great song by uh, Shane and Shane on their um, album about the Psalms. And they have one on Psalms uh, 62 that I just quoted from. And it's a great song. It's like leaning, you're not leaning on some tottering fence or some, some little stick that's going to give way beneath. You're leaning against a fortress when you're relying on God. And it's a great song that really talks about this imagery of God as your fortress, as your rock. This is what the Old Testament's full of. The Psalms capture this sense of Israel's trust and hope in God as their rock. But something happened in the life of Israel. Something went very, very wrong. Isaiah chapter 17 verse 10 says, You have forgotten the God of your salvation, and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. After exile to Babylon, Israel's rock seemed a lot smaller than they thought. Israel faced the crisis of the exile as a crisis of faith. They began to fear the nations and their idols and their gods. They began to think like this. Wait a minute. We've been trusting in God as our rock this whole time. And look where that got us. We're exiled. Israel has been defeated. Jerusalem's been torn down. Our temple's been burned to the ground. And here we are in exile. They began to think, wait a minute. These gods, these other gods gave the pagans victory over us. Did they defeat our God? See, in the ancient world, what happens down here on the ground is paralleled by what happens in heaven. That's how the ancient mind thought about it. So when two armies clash on the ground, gods are going to war. And if your God's stronger, your army wins. And that's why the conquered people have to start worshiping the conqueror's gods. Everything was spiritual, even combat. Everything was religious. There was no religion over here and the secular over there. It was all one thing, all together. Did they defeat our God? Are they bigger than our God? Maybe we should put our trust in something else. Let's look for another rock, one that doesn't seem so small anymore. God used to feel like it did in Psalm 62 and now now he doesn't anymore 
And as they took their eyes off God and looked at their lives, their circumstances, their past defeats and failures, and all the other gods on offer in Babylon, they began to forget who God is. They forgot the rock of their salvation, as Isaiah 17.10 says. He just didn't seem nearly as big and strong and reliable as he used to. And when we grow up, life has a way of making us think God isn't as big as we believed when we were younger. Maybe back in youth group, we were on fire for God, but today, He just doesn't do it for you anymore. And you turn back to God because you, know, you go away for a few years and you look back at God and say, well, maybe I'll give, maybe I'll give another chance. But he just doesn't, the appeal's not there. He just looks a lot smaller, a lot less relevant, a lot less important. We feel like maybe it's time to grow up and leave our childhood faith behind. Now we need a grown-up faith. Or maybe we need a different rock. One that seems a lot bigger or that feels a lot safer or one that appears to be more reliable and promises more security and blessing. Isaiah 44 is written to encourage and strengthen the people of God who are going through a crisis of faith. It's written to remind you of who God really is and to assure you that He is your mighty rock, and there is no other. He's not smaller than you remember. He's actually a lot bigger than you ever realized. And Isaiah 44 is meant to show us that. Isaiah says in chapter 44 to do three things. Three things when your faith is being tested or when you're going through a crisis of faith. Or three things to do to prepare for when you go through a crisis of faith in the future. Three things. He says to remember Him. He says to return to Him. And He says to rest on Him. Remember, return, and rest. So let's look at each of these. Beginning with remember. Beginning with remember. This is point one on your handout. A rock of remembrance. Verses 9 through 21. In verse 21, God says to his people, remember these things. Remember these things. And in context, he's referring to the previous section of the chapter, verses 9 through 20. And in that section, 9 through 20, Isaiah describes at length the absolute folly of idolatry. The complete foolishness of those who worship false gods by bowing down to man-made idols and images. The point of this section, which is just dripping with sarcasm and mockery if you read it, the point is to offer the Israelites a comparison and contrast between the rock of Israel and the fake rocks of the pagans. And this is meant as a compelling reminder of who God really is and a warning about the spiritual condition of those who worship idols. So let's take a look at it. First, let's look at verses 12 to 17. 12 to 17, where Isaiah describes the deep folly of idol worship. Check this out. He says, okay, 
Verse 12, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. Oh, I'm so hungry. He drinks no water and he's faint. So he's making his, he's, he's working. He gets hungry. He gets thirsty. He's ready for his lunch break. Verse 13, the carpenter stretches out a line. He marks it with a pencil. He shapes it with plans, with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into a fig, the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He's describing how you carve an idol, a figurine. You're shaping it, got, got your pencil, got your compass, and you're making it just so, and you're going to sit it in your house. Verse 14, he cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it, and warms himself, right? He cuts down the tree. He takes part of the wood and he burns a fire to get warm. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and he bakes bread. All right, so he takes this tree, cuts it down. Some of the wood is for firewood. Some of it's for making his bread. And then, into verse 15, also he makes a god and worships it. And makes it an idol and falls down before it. Verse 16, half of it he burns in the fire, over the half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. Okay, he's making fun of this man. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. And the whole point is to just picture how idiotic this guy is. He finds a tree, he chops it down, he takes some of the wood, it's just, he cuts it up for firewood. Let's go back to my grandpa's little farm, right? He heated his house, and it's still heated this way, uh, with a fire out in the stove, in a shed in the back. Right? And so he has all of his wood he's cut, lined up, and he's got his... And he's got his furnace, and he stokes the fire, he throws the wood in. Just imagine, if I walked back there, Grandpa, what are you doing? Oh, I'm putting wood in the fire, got to heat the house, heat the water. He puts in the wood, and I say, what's this? Oh, well, that's the other half of the piece of wood I just cut. That's God. That's what, Grandpa? That's God. That's your God. That, Grandpa prays to that. Grandpa, why do you? Because it's God. What does he do for you? Well, he listens to my prayer, and he blesses us, and he keeps us safe, and he helps my crops grow. That's God. But Grandpa, you just burned half a God in the fire. I know, don't worry about that. Of course, Grandpa's real, real, real Southern. He called it a far. <laughs> he threw it in the far. So the whole point of this section of Isaiah is to be sarcastic, mocking. Oh, look at this brilliant guy. He's worshiping his God, even though half the wood it's made out of, he uses to cook bread and heat his home. What a, what a fool, Isaiah says. The fool, the deep folly of idol worship. 
So these are the false gods. Any other god you turn to besides the God of Israel, it's just like Grandpa or whoever thinking that this little thing that he carved himself should be worshipped. Now, if that's the foolishness of idolatry, the next thing that this section of Isaiah is meant to tell us is the spiritual condition of people who actually believe that stuff. Look at verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Their witnesses. Remember, we talked about it last week or a couple weeks ago that false gods have their witnesses too. False gods have their own great commissions that they want their worshipers and evangelists and prophets and followers to spread. To get other people to accept those gods. And he says, their witnesses, they neither see nor know. They cannot see the folly of what they're doing. And the point is, they're just like their idols. We just sang Psalm 115, our opening hymn today. And it says that these idols, they have eyes but can't see, and ears but can't hear, and throats that make no sound, and mouths that can't speak, legs but they can't move. They're lifeless idols. And those who worship them are spiritually lifeless. They can't see either. They can't hear either. They become what they worship. And this is a key, key idea to pick up from the Scriptures. We become like what we worship. You will either serve idols and become like them, or you will serve the true God and become like Him. And that's why the Scripture tells us to be godly, to be like God, to live like Him, follow Him, grow in imitation of Him. Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians 3 that we behold the glory of the Lord. And as we behold His glory, we are being changed from one degree of glory into the next as we behold Him. In other words, as we worship Christ and we gaze upon Him, we're becoming like that image that we see. We're growing in Christ-likeness. We're becoming more godly. But when you worship and serve and follow idols, false gods, you become like them. And it says, verse 9, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. They cannot see, and they don't know the foolishness of what they're doing. Verses 18 to 20, They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes, so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, huh, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and I shall make the rest of it an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? This is the spiritual condition of idol worshipers. They become like what they worship. They become spiritually empty, lifeless, 
nothing. They cannot see, they cannot hear, they cannot discern the fog that they're in. That's the thing about being deceived. You don't actually know you're deceived until you come out of it. Once you wake up, then you can tell, man, look where I was. I was pretty deceived. I've been there before in life. I've been deceived about some stuff. Imagine you have too. And I didn't see it until I came out of it. Until finally, my eyes were opened and I was able to tell. That's where we are if we worship idols. And then the last part of this section, verses 10 and 11. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing. Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth, they shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. These false gods that promise you so much, these alternatives that the world has to offer to the true God, to Christ, they promise you everything, but they will take from you everything and leave you empty and with nothing. That's how sin works. It'll promise you every it'll promise everything to you and then it'll take everything from you. It's deception. And eventually these things will leave us worse than we ever found them. They will run us dry. Remember these things, verse 21 says. Remember these things. Whatever these other rocks, these other gods are promising you, they are nothing but lies and deception. Do not be led astray by all the false gods this world offers you. All these functional saviors to save you from all the different personal little hells that every commercial and billboard and advertisement tells you you're in. You're in bad car hell? Come buy a car from us. You're in finance hell? Well, come take out our insurance policy or do this get-rich-quick scheme. Oh, you're in overweight hell? Do this diet. I promise it's going to work. Like all the little hells that life tells us we're in and all the little saviors it throws at us and tells us serve this... Tithe to this, buy this, love this, try this, tell your friends, bring them to worship the idol with you. Go be a witness for these other things. Life will throw at you all these other false gods. And the world and your flesh and your enemy, the devil, will convince you God's not going to do it for you. You need this other stuff. Why are you wasting your time with him? Remember these things, Isaiah says. In the end, those things are nothing. And those who trust them will end with nothing as well. The false gods did not create you and they cannot redeem you. Look to the only true God, the rock of remembrance. And remind yourself every day that He alone is God the rock of your salvation, and there is no other. Verse 21 not only concludes the previous section of verses 9 to 20, it also introduces the following section, 
verses 22 to 28. And this is point two, a mighty fortress. In the previous section, Isaiah began a comparison and a contrast between the true rock and wooden idols by demonstrating the folly of idolaters. And in this section, Isaiah completes that comparison by demonstrating who this God really is. Against the backdrop of the description of the idols, this section stands out all the more clearly. And the main idea in this section is to persuade you, to persuade the people of God to return to the true God. Point one was remember. Remember that the idols are nothing compared to the true God. And now, point two is return to the true God. Come back. Turn around. Return to me. That's what verse 22 says at the end. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Now that you have been reminded that your rock is the only rock, there is no other. Remember him who has redeemed you and return to him. Come back to him. Now verse 21 says, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. Did you notice that? Verse 21 says, remember, and verse 22 says, I have not forgotten you. Oh, that's good news to struggling, straying Christians, is it not? God says, remember me, for I have never forgotten you. Even when you forget the Lord and turn away, He remembers you. Because he has pledged himself to be your redeemer and he dare not go back on his promise. He dare not leave, forget, or forsake you if you belong to him. True Christians struggle. We can stray. We can really get off that straight and narrow, that narrow way. And we can be way over here somewhere. I mean, the parable of the, the one sheep and the 99 is about believers. It's about, here's 99 doing awesome. And there's the one who is just lost in the woods and needs a search party. And Christians can end up there. We can wake up one day so far from God and think, how did I get here? What is going on in my life? How did I get so turned around? And it, I didn't just, it didn't happen in one day. I just took a step here and then forgot about God a little bit and then put my eyes on something else and then kind of took a step in that direction. And then, and then I wandered over here. And, we just, and then one day we wake up lost somewhere. And we just think, Lord, how did I get here? It's so, it's so easy to do that. It's so deceptive. It's so tricky. Our foot can slide off the path at any time. And that's what we have to... Take a passage like this and say, remember, like the prodigal in the far country eating the husks with the swine from the trough. And he comes to his senses and he thinks, I will get up and I will return to my father. And maybe, just maybe, he'll take me back. Even if not a son, maybe he'll just take me back as one of his hired servants. That's way better than where I am. And he gets up and he goes. And the good news is, the father never stopped looking for the son to come down the road. Because the text says, when he looked up and saw that prodigal a long way off, way down yonder. He got up 
And he ran and he met him on the road and embraced him and kissed him and blessed him and clothed him and made him a meal and sat him at the table because that's where he belonged. You may have forgotten God. He hasn't forgotten you. So remember, up and return. Come back to the one who is your Redeemer, who has never and will never fail, forget, or forsake his own. Verse 22 says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. God has saved you from your sin. He has rescued you from the wrath that is to come upon you for your sin. He has given you eternal life and you will never perish. God is your refuge for salvation. And He is also your refuge in this life from all the things that challenge your faith. The chapter ends by exalting God's sovereign power over all things as a means of inspiring our praise, but also inspiring our confidence that He is working all things for our good and He will one day deliver you from all evil. That's what verses 24 to 28 are about. Verse 24 says, Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, who... dot dot dot, And the rest of the chapter, from verse 24 all the way down to 28, the rest of the chapter fills in the blank with five different aspects of God's absolute sovereignty. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who, dot, 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 fill in the blank, who, fill in the blank, who, fill in the blank, it just whose occur five different times the rest of the chapter. Verse 24, He is sovereign over both creation and redemption. He says, You have not bought me sweet... Can- oh, wrong chapter. He says, verse 24, Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. He is sovereign over creation and redemption. Verse 25, He's sovereign over the whole pagan world, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. Verse 26, He is sovereign over His Word to make sure it comes to pass. Verse 26, Who confirms the word of His servant and fulfills the counsel of His messengers, who says of Jerusalem, She shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. He is sovereign over creation and redemption. He's sovereign over the whole pagan world. He's sovereign over His Word to bring it to pass. He's sovereign over nature. Verse 27, Who says to the deep, Be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Think of the Exodus. When the children of Israel go through on dry ground, He's sovereign even over nature itself. And then verse 28 He is sovereign over the decisions of kings and over the destinies of nations. Verse 28, who says of Cyrus, who's the king of Persia, 
the king of the largest empire known to man at the time. He says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he shall fulfill all my purpose. Ah, Cyrus is the most powerful man in the world. But he's just doing what I want him to do. In other words, Cyrus has his plans. Cyrus has his goals. Cyrus has his policies. His politics as emperor. But little does he know that I have taken all of his plans and ambitions and intentions and I have folded them into my greater plans and intentions. And everything he does will fulfill all my will that I have decreed. He just folds in everything that Cyrus does and therefore everything the Persian Empire does. It's just folded in, baked into God's plan to bring about his will. Cyrus is just going to fulfill my purpose Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. You see, Cyrus is the one who gave the decree that the Jews could return to their land and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. God's plan all along was to bring about the restoration of his people. And so, he just has some pagan ruler do it for him. All he has to do is tweak Cyrus's heart just a little bit and direct his mind just a little bit or put counselors around him. They're going to say what he wants said and Cyrus has to do what God has decreed. Cyrus doesn't think he's doing the bidding of God. He's just, he's just doing his own thing. He's a pagan. He worships who knows how many gods. But little does he know that God is so mighty and sovereign that he is directing even the sins of Cyrus to accomplish his great purpose. And if God can do that, he is great enough and mighty enough to work in your life and in your circumstances and to take even your faults, flaws, failures, sins, regrets and just fold those in to a beautiful glorious plan to work all things for your good and to lead you to a weight of glory that will be an eternal inheritance that will outweigh anything you have suffered and struggled with in this life. The sovereign God, the almighty rock of Israel, He is your redeemer and He's your refuge in this life. Remember Him and return to Him with all your heart. He is a mighty fortress. He can be trusted. He will never fail you, never forget you, never forsake you. God is sovereign even in the midst of those trying circumstances in your life that have led you to your crisis of faith. Little did you know that your own wandering, even that, has not escaped the sovereignty of God. And because He is sovereign even over your wandering, He is able to bring you back to wake you up in the far country so you remember Him and to lead you back to Him. Through it all, God is with you, Christian. God is great and He is good. Isaiah 26.4 says this, Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Return to the Lord and know the joy of trusting Him who glorifies himself by being your perfect Savior. Verse 23. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. 
Shout, O depths of the earth, break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. All of nature and creation is called to praise God. What for? Into the verse. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. God is glorifying himself by being your mighty fortress, your everlasting rock for you to lean on and trust in, even in the midst of your crisis of faith. Well, we've seen God's commands to remember Him and to return to Him. And now we come to the final section by going back to the beginning section of the chapter, verses 1 through 8. And this is the passage I read at the beginning. In this section, the command is repeated twice to fear not in verse 2 and in verse 8. Fear not. There's so much here in this, in this section. There's so much richness here for us to see. But I just want to focus on one promise in verses 2 and 3 for those who remember and return to the rock of Israel, the only true God. So we'll just focus on this one last point from verses 2 and 3. God promises to pour out spiritual water, the Holy Spirit, for the renewal and refreshment of His chosen people. Look at verses 2 and 3. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob my servant, Jeshurun whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And then verse 4 says, They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. Notice the parallels here. Verse 3, I will pour water on the thirsty land. Parallels, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring. Streams on the dry ground parallels blessing on your descendants. God promises to pour out this spiritual water, the Holy Spirit, to renew and refresh you right where you are in the midst of your crisis of faith, in the midst of your doubts and struggles. He promises if you remember Him, if you return to Him, He has living water that will bring new life to you where you feel dry and dead inside. New life, refreshment and renewal. He promises to make you fruitful and to make you flourish. Now this imagery echoes the Exodus when God gave the people water from the rock in the wilderness. You remember that story? The people are thirsty so Moses strikes the rock and water comes out. This imagery of pouring out this Water in the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. It echoes that exodus miracle of giving water from the rock. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4 that the Hebrews in the wilderness, quote, all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. End quote. You see, Paul connects the rock in the wilderness from which God gave the people water. He connects that with the, <clears throat> with the rock 
or with the person and work of Christ. Paul takes the rock in the wilderness and connects that with the person and work of Christ. And then Isaiah connects that same rock in the wilderness with the rock of Israel, who is Yahweh, the only true God. So, putting these together, Christ is the rock of Israel. Christ is Yahweh. Christ is the only true God. And it's only in Christ that this promise of spiritual water and refreshment is fulfilled. Christ alone is that solid rock on which you must stand. Remember Him. Rest in Him. Christ says, come to me and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. Come to me and drink the fountain of living water. For I will make the Holy Spirit a spring of living water inside you. Christ is that solid rock from whom this spiritual life-giving water flows. He is the one from whose side upon the cross the water with the blood came out when he was pierced. He is the one who has drunk down the damnation and wrath of God that, does, that we deserve. And from Him flows life and grace and mercy. And He buried your sins in a rock tomb. And it stays there. But He comes out full of life and promise for you. He is your solid rock. He is the one who has accomplished your whole salvation. He's the one you must remember upon the tree. He's the one you must return to, coming to, to the foot of the cross and bowing down. He's the one you can trust in. He's the one you can rely upon. You cast yourselves upon the arms of an almighty Savior, a mighty fortress, a rock of remembrance, a solid rock to plant your feet upon and that will not give way if you put all your weight upon Him. Fear not, you who are stranded and struggling and straying. Christ will give you His Spirit and water you with His Word and cause you to grow in Him and to bear the satisfying fruit of the Spirit. If you are going through a crisis of faith or if you're going through a terrible dry season in your walk with the Lord, read Isaiah 44 and heed the word of the Lord today. Those who may not be going through these things, you must heed this word also and prepare yourself for when the famine and the dry season comes. Remember, Christian, that your God is the only rock and there is no other. Return to Him for He is your Redeemer and the Sovereign God who will never let you slip away. Fear not, Christian. Rest in Christ alone, who will tend you like a precious garden and water you with His Spirit, bringing renewal, refreshment, and a harvest of righteousness and joy. And one day, the final inheritance, that weight of glory, will be yours. Stand here upon the only rock. There is no other. Let's pray.
Almighty Father, we thank you so much for the gift of Christ and for the power of his word and for the energy of his spirit to work in our hearts and minds and lives, to to bring transformation and change. And I pray, Lord, that today, that as I've struck the rock of this word, that like Moses in the wilderness, striking the flinty rock, that your life-giving water has come forth to your people. I pray that it will be life to my thirsty soul today. And that I myself would remember and return and rest upon you. That I would put all my hope, faith, trust and reliance upon Christ and Christ alone and stand no other place. Look to no other Savior. Believe none of the lies that my own flesh and this world and the enemy wants me to believe. That I would not look to the right or to the left at any other God, any other Savior that I would remember who you are, that I would reflect upon the fact that I become like what I worship. And I pray that all of us together here would set our eyes upon you, that we would not lift our eyes to idols. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. May we not lift our eyes to any but you as we seek your face, O God of Jacob. There is no other rock, and we worship you today as our refuge and our salvation, our solid rock upon whom we stand forever. That when everything else in life is shaking, you will not fall away under our feet. When everything else is shaking, we stand firm and secure in you. Help us to trust. Help the struggling and straying to come back. And show us how we can pray and reach and love and minister and be patient and kind and extend your grace to those who need it today. May we be your people. May we be like you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.